Welcome to Mornings with Mike. Public Safety Today. Grab a coffee and sign up to receive your call-in information. Be a part of the show. For more information at any time, please visit www.tapsd.org. Now, let's get started with your host, Mike Pazesny. All right, folks, so we're talking about the dangers within the schools and crisis intervention problems uh, as a result of those, and we're, and we're specifically talking about types of gangs. We just got through discussing copycats and wannabes as far as getting in a short-lived membership as a wannabe kind of thing. We talked about the Aryan Nation and the neo-Nazis and the right-wingers and the political religious philosophies that adults are pushing on these kids and bringing them in as a result of the perceived browning of America. Uh, and then we now we're moving to the mega gangs. Mega gangs are started by gang members, typically to create safe havens um, to escape the problems of big city crime. You know, the children are already members of the gangs that they try to escape. These transported gang members start their own little gangs. Um, Indian reservations receiving families out of big cities are an example of a transient population. Mega gangs opening new territory with the increased competition in large metropolitan areas, uh, forcing gangs to seek new territory to be able to sell mainly drugs. So we have interstate arteries. We have towns that are adjacent to where gangs have been firmly established. The gangs start to move out, and, and then they become what's referred to now as a mega gang, the most formidable, formidable type of gang organization, because in these mega gangs we have older adults They've been involved in criminal enterprise for a long time. There's a clear hierarchy of memberships. They have a sophisticated organizational plan. They have gang operating rules. Uh, they may have financial backing. And all of these things cost a lot of money. So as a result of it costing money, they have to be uh, very active in whatever their financial interests are. And the racial ethnic makeup of these gangs typically is predominantly African-American or Latino in the Midwest. Uh, there may be a variety of different nationalities on the east or west coasts, uh, but this is the stereotypical street gang of the media and what they talk about. But there are all kinds of smaller organizations. It's kind of like the Klan these days. And everybody thinks, well, not everybody, but a lot of people think when you talk about the KKK that there's this big national organization of the Klan and everybody gets along and they just happen to have their little Klan chapter, you know, down there in Port St. Lucie or someplace. But the reality of the situation is that there's a dozen or so clan organizations that all subscribe to the clan ideology, but but in effect, at least at, at this point in time, they are still their own standalone clan organizations. They just they just kind of fall under the clan umbrella. It's not that there's a national clan leader in a bunch of small chapters and they all do the same thing under the direction of the national clan leader. It doesn't really work that way. Um, so a lot of these and a lot of these mega gangs now are starting to uh, accumulate centralized leadership, and that's kind of the scary part: is that they're starting to organize themselves into the centralized leadership, become multi-ethnic because it increases their sales base and their revenue base, uh, and becoming increasingly violent and bringing that violence to our schools. There's another group called the Smorgasbord Homeboys. So these are some small gangs that are started for whatever reason. Uh, but they're instrumental in criminal behavior beginning in those local areas, usually something like theft or maybe a hate crime or something. 
um, they get perceived as being social outcasts. And a lot of times what they'll do is they'll pull in different philosophies in order to be able to build their gang. It's kind of like you and I get together, decide we're going to start our own little gang. So what we'll do is we'll be neo-Nazis and we'll hook up with some uh, devil worship. And then what we'll do is we'll engage ourselves in auto theft because we know the return on investment is good with all that. And then we will accomplish something. And maybe six months down the road, the gang falls apart because we can't get more than four or five people and two of them have already been busted and people have already put leads on us. So we, you know, the thing falls apart or we grow out of it or, or whatever the thing is. But in the meantime, we create violence within that school. So why do we have gangs or the threat of gang formation becoming problematic for suburban and rural areas? Uh, the development of diverse multicultural communities in the United States in the 21st century is going to become accelerated. Uh, we have uh, white farming communities in the Midwest that have not seen a lot of integration yet, which are now beginning to become integrated uh, as a nation we have always had the Statue of Liberty there holding up that light, but generally every time that there has been some kind of group which has come in and invaded the turf uh, that is local, they have had some kind of a problem. And it has not been until recently that we have had the electronic media which has facilitated the transmission of hate speak. We have never had the capacity until lately for people to be brought together uh, for um, the transmission of antisocial behavior. We have never before had the ability to produce hate literature like we have now and hate websites and all these kinds of things that people who are criminogenic in their thinking thrive on. Uh, people who were opportunistic use to manipulate other people to be able to gain what it is that they want. So chat rooms and websites and emails provide gangs plenty of opportunities to be able to talk to, to Johnny out there in the cornfield someplace and to explain to him how, you know, he's got big brothers back here, back in the urban areas that will help to empower him and provide him with opportunities that he could never have had before. And all of a sudden they start finding these willing uh, victims out there that they can manipulate and bring into the gang because in the gang they get love. And, you know, they do the beat-ins in order to be able to bring them in. And, you know, you've got six people who will pound somebody for 18 seconds and then and then pull them up and they'll all do their signs and they'll all shake hands and they'll all hug each other. And now you're 18th Street and isn't life grand? Now you're loved because that's the only place that these kids get love because everybody else has forgotten what their purpose was when they went through procreation and brought somebody on the planet, which is to build that individual to being the best person that they could be. Well, you just say, well, you know what? Let the government raise them. Let the schools raise them. Let the schools be the de facto parents. I don't want to be a parent. I'm too busy having fun. I'm too busy playing my video games and sitting on my butt in front of the television when I come home from work. I just want to chill because work is so high stress. I don't really care what Johnny's doing in school. I really don't want to communicate with Johnny. Uh, he's got his own Xbox in his room. Let him play in his room and uh, let him play with his friends. And so Johnny raises himself. 
And th- we put Johnny, when Johnny leaves the home where nobody talks, well, then we put him in a school, which is basically like a correctional facility, and where people still don't really associate with Johnny. And so then Johnny grows up, and what does he do? He grows up with maladaptive thinking and maladaptive behavioral traits, criminogenic thoughts, goes ahead and does what he has to do. He's been trained in what to do from playing Grand Theft Auto for the last 15 years of his life. So then he goes ahead and does some things because those thoughts have already been planted in his head, and he just graduates from the correctional high school to the correctional institution and then ends up being part of that uh, revolving door of justice that we already incarcerate more people than any other uh, nation does on earth for anyway. Which feeds the criminal justice system, makes all kinds of great jobs. You know, you have lots of correctional officers, lots of cops on the streets. We can become more and more and more a militaristic structure, which then enables us to go out and and declare war on other countries and things because we have so many veterans. You know, we're creating combat veterans right on our own streets. Why not put those in the military? And they're already pre-trained. We can go ahead and send them anywhere on the planet we need to so that we can accomplish uh, changing regimes and, and doing what we want to do on a global basis. So the plain facts are when you're dealing with gangs, insofar as a school is concerned, prevention is likely to be much more effective than intervention. You want to try to keep them out. Once a gang has gotten into the school, there is the fear and intimidation factor which is going to keep them there. You can't change gang members' attitudes about being gang members easily, and, and spending the amount of time and resources invested in that could much more effectively be done keeping them out. Gang members already fall into what are called at-risk student categories. At-risk meaning that a young person is liable to be an academic or social failure when his or her potential for becoming a responsible or productive adult is limited by barriers. These barriers can be at home, they can be at school, they can be in the community. But these people become truant, they have problems with the legal system, they're characterized by impulsive behavior and anxiety and depression, typically will end up uh, using drugs to self-medicate. Uh, to to bring themselves back in. Jeffrey Dahmer, look at him. His father was a chemist, but the kid was an alcoholic by the time he hit high school, had vodka stashed in his thermos right there in his wall locker. So the drug use, the suicidal ideation, uh, the learning difficulties all become part of the identification of these students. Melton in 2001 called these kids phantom students because like the phantom of the opera, they would wear a mask for the rest of society to hide all their emotional scars but they would remain in the shadows of the overall school culture. And, uh, and those are the kids that we have to worry about. Um, there's a lot of different approaches that have been tried with children who make up the bulk of gang membership. And some of these things are more uh, attractive and uh, more effective than others. First one being counseling. Counseling of, in the sense of having a continuing person-centered, non-evaluative, non-judgmental dialogue with a gang member is one of the least effective things you can possibly do. These kids are already alienated, they're disenfranchised, they're gangbangers, they're suspicious. Uh, they're being told by their gang not to trust you to begin with, and you're probably completely out of touch with what it is they're having to live through. If you're a school counselor, you probably have a master's degree, which means that you have isolated and insulated yourself from the level of poverty that a lot of these kids come from. However, a lot of these kids come from middle class and upper middle class families. So what is it that they're about as far as poverty is concerned? Poverty of moral, uh, moral character, poverty of attention. Uh, poverty of anybody really giving a damn about them as much as they give a damn about their material growth. So the kid gets angry, the kid gets mad, the kid feels empty, the kid goes and finds this this gang to fall in love with because guess what? Uh, there, somebody listens to them. 
You know, there they have friends. They didn't have friends anyplace else because they never fit in. So they're going to be on the defensive and counseling probably won't work. So then what do we do? We have officer, school resource person, you know, and we have the SRO program. The counselor tries to bring the SRO into the crisis situation because multidisciplinary school pupil personnel service teams, now we have to have these multidisciplinary uh, service teams, uh, involve the school police officers. And these are very important to stopping what we believe as being establishment types, threatening and intimidating behavior. Having police in the schools can do much more than direct after-school traffic and monitoring of ball games. Uh, the police officers who are operating within our schools uh, coordinate Intel Pro. I mean, I hate to say that, but uh, intelligence programs in the schools are critical in being able to work with school human services workers and the students in gang prevention programs and in helping other things like student problem solving, finding resources, making referrals, um, you know, and then the plain old stuff like deterring violence and uh, uh, getting information about um, um, illegal activities and and things like that. So the school resource officers can be critical, but it's a sad fact that we need to have armed law enforcement officers within the schools to be able to provide the intelligence that normally students felt comfortable just going to a teacher about or going to a school counselor about. All right, so you're saying, well, counseling doesn't work, and school resource officers are basically just collecting intelligence and putting off fights and trying to restrict people from coming in the building. That doesn't do anything about the bullying. So then we have to have guidance programs. We have to have anti-bullying campaigns. And these passive lecture-based guidance programs that target fear arousal and self-esteem building and all those, most of those have proven not to be highly effective. Active guidance programs that provide direct student involvement through modeling and role play and behavioral rehearsal in things like anger management and bullying, those are more helpful in tackling actual gang issues. Uh, to be effective, programs with students who are involved in gangs have to have clear and easily implemented practices, and they have to be intense and continue long enough with follow-up sessions to reinforce the message, because the gang will be reinforcing their message. Your message has to be just as strong, if not more so, just as intense as more so. Bullying and intimidation affects roughly 77% of junior and senior high school students. Uh, this was a survey that was done in 2003. Glasser did a study all the way back in 69 that took a look at classroom meetings that targeted real-time school and peer problems and found that there were some um, advantages to having classroom meetings where people would sit around and talk about it kind of thing. But the problem with that attempt is that bullying is usually done by people who don't speak up and identify themselves as bullies. So they'll sit there and they'll talk about bullying and they'll, they'll, they'll pay lip service to it. But these kids are so much street smarter than they were 50 years ago that you're going to be patting yourself on the back for doing an anti-bullying classroom discussion when, in fact, um, there's, you know, there's nothing that you, you, you actually accomplished. Peer, peer counseling and peer mediation is something that's a little bit newer insofar as a national rollout in an attempt to 
reduce the crisis situation when it comes to bullying and, and gang membership and all that kind of stuff. So you think, well, it's newer, so it must be better. But in, if, but in actuality, when we do outcome-based measurement of the effectiveness of different kinds of counseling, when it comes to gang membership, one of the worst approaches that you can use is to use peer crisis workers um, who are gang members or for the crisis worker to try to run some kind of counseling group which is composed entirely of gang members. Because these gang members who are being educated in the psychology of anti-gang tactics will just take over the group. Not only can they intimidate each other uh, through the group process, and God forbid if you mix gang members from different gang groups within the same group, you know, different gang members from different sets within the same group, um, not only do you have to worry about the potential for violence within that group, but you have to worry about the potential for violence against who it is that's trying to mediate the whole the whole thing. Um, there's some evidence that if we take certain counseling groups where the students are chosen from a cross-section of the school, that that may help gang members look at alternatives and develop new behaviors. So when the peer counseling has worked, it has worked because there has been a group of students brought together who were from a cross-section of the school so that the gangbangers in there could see students and communicate with students that maybe they typically would not have communicated with so that while not an anti-gang message would be being put out by them, a pro-social um, uh, communication would be coming from them and that they would be exposed to and that that might work. So there's less resistance in that way. But but uh, saying, okay, well, I'm going to take these 12 little crip bangers over here and put together a group to talk with them about how bad that is, that doesn't work. Don't, don't, don't try to do that. Anger management. There have been a variety of anger management techniques that have been developed to work with adolescents and children. And most of these approaches involve skill training, behavior rehearsal, and pro-social behaviors, and teaching the students cognitive um, cognitive techniques that cool off some of the way that they think that they're supposed to be handling these kinds of things. The problem with dealing with students from an anger management perspective is that anger management is so pervasive that a lot of times it's very difficult for you to control all of the variables through the presentation. After-school and community outreach programs. Research indicates that all those such after-school programs may have some recreational value, playing basketball and those kinds of things. They're not effective at delinquency reduction. All it does is it keeps the students busy for a little while after school playing b-ball, and then after they get done playing b-ball and the program shuts down, then they go out and they steal stuff out of cars. So you're delaying the inevitable with most of these after-school programs. What might work is something like the Boys and Girls Clubs of America, where they have a more comprehensive program that involves uh, social and academic skill building, personal counseling, career counseling, um, a more wraparound concept kind of thing. So just opening the local recreation center until 7 o'clock at night does you no good. The kids will play b-ball, and then on their way home, they'll be committing crimes, and then they'll get home, and, and uh, they'll go play a couple of hours worth of uh, auto theft, Grand Theft Auto on their Xbox. And I'm not just I'm not just blaming Grand Theft Auto. I'm blaming all of these video games that preach violence and destruction and, and criminal behavior as something that you get rewarded for. All right, so we're talking about gangs. We're talking about programs that do and don't work. Don't go away. We'll be right back. 
You are listening to the American Public Safety Training Institute. You may have a degree, but do you have what it takes? Online and field training available now from TAPSTE. Get the skills from the best trainers in America. Find out how at www.tapste.org. Get your foot in the door by earning your certificate now. <laughs> 